Today's text is from Exodus 3, verses 1 through 15. It can be found on page 46 of your pew Bible. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near, take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters. I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey, to the place of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And now, behold, the cry of the people of Israel has come to me, and I have also seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppressed them. Come, I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? He said, But I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, Say this to the people of Israel, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning. I need to address the elephant in the room. Can you feel it here this morning? And that, of course, is the 1998 animated film epic, The Prince of Egypt. <laughs> Whenever I read this narrative in Exodus, that is all that I can see. So I had to detox when preparing for this sermon, and I struggled because that's all that was in my mind's eye. You know, the exodus from Egypt is actually one of the most depicted events from the Bible in our pop culture. There's actually 16 movie adaptations of this narrative. So I, of course, think of the Prince of Egypt, but maybe you're a little older than me, and you think of the 1956 adaptation, The Ten Commandments, with Charlton Heston, with his iconic red robe and his big, voluptuous hair. And it's a little ironic that as we approach this text, we're flooded with this type of imagery because our sermon series today is called The Invisible God Made Visible. And of course, we're not talking about God being visible on a television screen or on a movie screen. We're talking about theophanies. Now, that's kind of a big theological word. What's a theophany? 
Theophanies are visible appearances of God's presence, God himself manifested in some kind of physical form, interacting with humanity to bring about his purposes. So today, we're looking at this burning bush. And while we get a real glimpse of God's presence in these Old Testament theophanies, we find the complete picture of God's presence through the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So these theophanies lead us to look forward in anticipation for Emmanuel, God with us. Of course, we find ourselves in the book of Exodus, the second book of the Bible, and Exodus has this sort of thematic through line, if you will, and that's God's presence among his people. And that culminates with God being physically present with them through the tabernacle, which is essentially this nomadic version of the temple where God's presence dwelled among the Israelites in a very physical and tangible way. But this book begins with Israel feeling very far from God's presence, right? They're enslaved in Egypt, and they've been enslaved there some 400 years up until Moses' day. However, we see in our sermon text today that God is actually present with them. And God comes down to his people calling Moses for the purpose of freeing Israel from this slavery. And Israel begins to realize that God is present with them even when they didn't see it. I think most of us in the church have a good head knowledge of this idea that God is present with us, right? And I could just make one point today and say, God is always present with us, and then we could all close our Bibles and go home, right? But we could go home, and we'd still deal with depression, anxiety, chronic pain, physical ailments, strained relationships, financial burdens, and many other hardships. And in those moments of struggle, we may know in our minds that God is with us, but we don't really feel in our hearts that he is present We don't actually sense that he is near, and we don't know that he is actually with us. When confronted with the hardships and the brokenness of this fallen world, it's hard to see that God is present and to see him at work in the midst of our struggles. And it's even harder to join him in the work that he calls us to. So this morning, we're going to look at four places that God is present, but these four places are places that Moses struggled with. They're places that Israel struggled with. They're places that we today still struggle with. So God's presence in four challenging places. First, God's present in the wilderness. Second, God is present in our suffering. Third, God is present in our insecurities. And fourth, God is present in our calling. So as we approach this text this morning, let me pray as we seek to understand God's word. God, Holy Spirit, we recognize that you are present with us even now, and you're working to reveal to us the truth of your word, opening our minds and softening our hearts. I pray that we would grow in our acknowledgement of your presence through understanding this passage, that we would experience your presence with us through the many challenges of life, and in the mission that you've called us to. May the words spoken during this time bring all praise and all glory to you. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So our first point, God is present in the wilderness. So how did Moses find himself in this situation to begin with? Some of you are very, very familiar with this story, uh, but so we're all on the same page. Let's just recap chapter 2 of the book of Exodus. So Moses was born a Hebrew in Egypt, 
And during that time, Pharaoh commanded for all the Egyptian boys to be killed out of this generational fear that the Israelites, Israelites might grow too great and overthrow Egypt. So Moses is hidden away in a basket by his mother and sent down the Nile River as a last-ditch effort to save her son. Moses is found in the Nile River by Pharaoh's daughter, and he's raised as Egyptian royalty. When he's older, he goes out to see the burdens and the suffering of the Hebrews, his people, and he sees an Egyptian slave driver beating a Hebrew, and he ends up killing that Egyptian. When Pharaoh finds out about this, he seeks to then kill Moses. So Moses flees to the southeast, to the wilderness region of Midian. Here he is taken in by the priest of Midian, for the Midianites were a God-fearing people that descended from Abraham. And he ends up marrying that priest's daughter, Zipporah, and they have a son together. And they're out in the wilderness living a somewhat peaceful and quiet life, it seems. So beginning in our passage today in Exodus 3, verse 1, Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. Now if you're a shepherd, you occasionally need to move your flock around to find greener pastures for them to graze. Uh, So this could sometimes be a multi-day journey, so Moses here might be somewhat far from his home coming upon this mountain of God. Uh, Now in my first point here, God is present in the wilderness, we're not talking about like a wilderness of life. We're talking about the actual, real, physical wilderness. Uh, So I want to take a look at a few tangible things that Moses encounters here in the wilderness that reveals to us God's presence. And the first is this mountain itself, Horeb. Now, Horeb and Mount Sinai are essentially the same place, if you're familiar with Mount Sinai. Horeb would refer more to the general region, whereas Mount Sinai would refer more to the mountain itself. But they're often used interchangeably in Scripture. So this is the same place that Moses will return to when he has freed the Israelites, spoiler alert, after the Exodus. And this is the same mountain on which he will receive the Ten Commandments from God, proclaim his laws to the people, and continually encounter this tangible presence of the Lord. And we see that God turns this desolate, somewhat mundane place into a holy place where his presence is continually revealed And here we see the first instance of that in Horeb on Mount Sinai with the burning bush. Let's take a look at the burning bush. In verse 2, And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of the bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. So first we see this terminology the angel of the Lord at the top of verse 2. Now we know that the angel of the Lord isn't just a messenger of the Lord, but actually God himself. We know this based on the way this term is used in other parts of the Old Testament, and we also know this based on the angel's own testimony in verse 6 of our passage, where he says, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. And this angel of the Lord also doesn't look like anything we sort of traditionally think about angels, right? He doesn't have wings or a big flowy robe or play a little harp. Instead, the angel is described as being in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. And Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. There are a couple different 
ideas, hypotheses out there about the metaphorical or symbolic significance of this bush. The first is that fire may represent the power of God and his presence, and we see that throughout Exodus where there's a pillar of fire and there's fire over the tabernacle, so that makes some sense. Another one is that fire represents the suffering of Israel in Egypt, for it is burned, but it's not consumed. That would mean that God preserves Egypt even in the midst of hardship and hopelessness as represented by the fire. Another one is that it's actually a symbol for Jesus, that this is like a thorny bush, like the crown of thorns, and that the fire is sort of the suffering that Christ goes through, and that this is actually a Christophany, Jesus himself, not just a theophany. But I think we need to take a step back because it's really interesting to think about the symbolism and metaphorical significance that God chooses to use and how he establishes his presence. But we don't really know with any sort of certainty what the symbolic nature of the burning bush is all about. But there's one very obvious observation that we can confidently make about the burning bush that reveals a lot about who God is. And it's simply that God has authority over all of the natural world. A burning bush that is not consumed, not burnt up, is not normal. Only the true God of creation can bend the laws of nature to his will. And we see this throughout the narrative in Exodus. We see these plagues that God brings upon Egypt. He turns the Nile River to blood through Moses. He controls the presence of frogs, gnats, flies, and locusts. He has the power over the weather, causing hail and lightning and thunder. And then he covers Egypt in darkness completely for three days. We see this in Jesus, too, where his miracles are evidences of his power over creation and his divine nature. In the ancient world, polytheism, this belief in many gods, was often a way to explain away the natural world, right? In Egyptian polytheism, there is a god of the Nile, there's a god of the earth, there's the goddess of the sky, there's the god of storms, there's a god of the sun, just to name a few, the list goes on and on. Yet we see here that the true God is not creation. He is above his creation. And in this burning bush, Moses gets a glimpse of who he is encountering. He is encountering a God that has authority over the natural world, a God who is not bound by physical limitations, a God who is powerful and holy. We see God's power and holiness further with his instruction to Moses. Taking a look at verse 4. When the Lord saw that he had turned aside, God called him out of the bush, Moses, Moses, and he said, Here I am. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. The place on which you are standing is holy ground. So the first command here, do not come near, in verse 5. It's a little strange for us on first reading, because as Christians of the New Covenant, reconciled into a right relationship with God by the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus, we experience this sort of intense intimacy with God the Father so that we can draw near to God and he will draw near to us, right? But later on in Exodus 33 on Mount Sinai, Moses says to God, please show me your glory. And God says, you cannot see my face for man shall not see me and live. We even see this in our passage today in verse 6 where Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. Sin cannot exist in the presence of a holy God. 
It is only by God's mercy that we're even able to experience his presence without literally dying. So here, God is protecting Moses from this divine, holy power of God. And God's mercy was shown to all of us through Jesus Christ, who made a way for us to have unity with this divine, holy, perfect God. We should respond here in thankfulness, because in the same way that God chose to come to Moses, God chose to come to us all and unite us with the Father. The second command here is to take your sandals off. Now, this gesture has many implications. It could be thought of as reverence. It could be thought of as purification. But it could also be thought of as Moses entering God's house. You know, even in some Eastern traditions today, you take off your shoes before entering someone's home. That's a custom. So as Moses comes upon this holy ground, taking his sandals off, this is an acknowledgement that God's presence is dwelling in this place. And I think this implication is the most consistent with the whole book of Exodus about God's presence dwelling and living among his people. Now, there's nothing intrinsically holy about this specific place and about this holy ground, but it's God's presence that makes it holy. When I was a senior in high school, I had a church friend that I would regularly give rides to in my old 1993 Honda Accord. (laughs) Whenever I would drop him off back at his house in the evening, we would start to have spiritual conversations, and sometimes those would go late into the night and last for hours. So we'd just be sitting parked in front of his house, talking about God, what we're learning in the Bible, confessing sin to each other, sharing our struggles and our burdens with each other. And one Sunday morning at our church, we were in our Sunday school class, and there was some sort of uh, like guided interactive activity where we were all supposed to draw based on the prompt that was where we felt closest to God. Some people drew the church building. That's a very classic response. Some people drew a person, like a mentor or a grandparent. That's more of an abstract, but also a very meaningful choice. My friend drew my old 1993 Honda Accord. Yes, my family's 1993 Honda Accord was the place where he felt closest to God. And that, for him, was his holy ground. And I think that's a funny story, but there's something that's really biblically satisfying about his response to that question, right? Because as Christians, God is always present with us by the Holy Spirit, and we encounter him wherever and whenever we open our hearts to him even if the place seems ordinary and mundane. In some respects, if you think about it, all Christians are holy ground. The righteousness of Christ is over us, and our bodies are temples to the Holy Spirit, where God dwells in our very being, our very hearts. And wherever our feet fall, the kingdom of God comes. Do we think about that during the week? Do we think about that outside of church, that God's presence is constantly with us, even in the mundane, even in the wilderness? God is present in the wilderness. Our second point for today is that God is present in our suffering. Here we'll be taking a look at verses 6 through 10. In verse 6, God introduces himself with this connection and relationship to Israel's history, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the covenant from Genesis 12 that God will establish this great nation through Abraham that will be a blessing to the entire world. 
We see that he's always been involved with Israel on a personal level, and he's familiar with their sufferings. We see these action verbs here. We see seen, heard, know. God saw their affliction. He heard their cries. He knew their suffering, even when it didn't seem like it. How hard would it be to feel that God is present after 430 years in slavery? It's easy to see really large periods of time in the Old Testament and not to think a lot about it because there are a lot of big numbers in the Old Testament, but let's put that in our context. 430 years would be like if the transatlantic slave trade in America, which started in the 16th century, was still actively happening right now. Generations and generations subjugated, humiliated, and broken. But as if slavery wasn't enough to endure, Israel was also experiencing genocide at the hand of their oppressors. We read in Exodus 1 that Pharaoh feared a revolt by the Israelites since they were great in number. So he instructs the Hebrew midwives to kill the baby boys as they're being born. The midwives, however, find a way around this command So Pharaoh goes a step further and commands all his people that every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile. He didn't just command his soldiers like in the Prince of Egypt. He commands all of the people to cast the Israelite babies into the Nile. And if slavery wasn't enough to endure and genocide wasn't enough to endure, there's even a whole other level to this suffering when we consider the place of its genocide, the Nile. See, Egypt is a desert nation, and the only way that it's habitable is because of the Nile. The Nile was literally the source of life for those in Egypt. That's where you get your drinking water. That's where you wash your clothes. That's where you bathe. Imagine for a moment being a Hebrew mother, having to drink from and bathe in what was a mass grave of your children. I just can't even imagine. Thinking about this gives some context to when God turns the Nile into blood in chapter 7. Yes, it's a miraculous sign of his power and his authority over the source of Egyptian life, but he is exposing this injustice that when Israel felt that God was not present, he was. He heard and he saw, and he pulls back the curtain on Israel's suffering as the Nile fills with the blood of their children. It's an incomprehensible evil that was justified. And it becomes a display of horror for the whole nation. God sees. God knows. I have an older family member who lost her two-year-old son to cancer. And I can't even imagine that suffering. She's in the later stage of her life now, and she still feels that God has abandoned her some 60 years later. Maybe someone here today or someone joining online feels that same way, that you've experienced such intense suffering that it's caused you to think that God isn't real or that if he is real, that he isn't loving, that he doesn't care, that he isn't present. And while I personally haven't gone through something like that, I understand the perspective because sometimes we're confronted with suffering that we don't have answers for, suffering that we cannot explain away, and we wonder why God doesn't just immediately take it all away. We live in this fallen world where things are so wrong. We weren't created to live like this. And I don't want to sugarcoat the dark and painful realities of living in a fallen world. But all I can say is this, that God not only sees, 
He not only knows, but he's experienced suffering in this fallen world. What does it mean that the God of the universe surrendered his own son to suffering and to death? That in the same way the Hebrew babies were hunted down by the authority of Pharaoh, baby Jesus was hunted down by the authority of Herod. And ultimately, he is publicly murdered by evil men in one of the most painful and shameful ways, hanging naked on a cross with real sweat and real tears, real blood, and buried in a real tomb. And it seemed that death has won. God sees. God knows. But in Christ's resurrection, we see a glimpse of this glory in store for all of us. Not just the new life in Christ that we experience here and now, but the restoration that we will experience in his heavenly kingdom, where all pain and all death is gone, where he will wipe away every tear from our eye, and death will be no more, because Jesus conquered death. I fear some of us think that this is just an empty promise, that you just have to wait, that you just have to endure. But know that Jesus suffered in very real ways. And even when he seems far, the suffering servant is calling to you from the midst of your suffering, inviting you not to suffer alone, but to suffer alongside him. And of course, he has called us all to suffer alongside one another. I am confident in saying that we all face suffering. But maybe you're here today and you don't feel like you're in an active season of suffering, first of all. Praise God, that's a a gift and a grace in your life. But may I invite you to ask yourself this question, how am I helping my brothers and sisters bear their suffering? How is God calling me to be present and to help relieve the suffering of others? And we'll explore more of that later. You may not feel well equipped for that kind of intense ministry, bearing other people's suffering. So that leads me to our next point, that God is present in our insecurities. In verse 10, we see God's call to Moses. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And in verse 11, we see Moses' concerns and his insecurities begin. His first question is, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? Who am I? We can read this from our context and be like, you're Moses, man. Like, you're the hero of the Bible. You're this leader of Israel. You're a forefather in our faith. You're the guy that's going to perform all these signs and wonders and write the Mosaic law and parts of the Bible, right? But let's entertain Moses and his self-doubt for a moment. So we know that Moses was a murderer. We've talked about that, as I mentioned earlier. Moses kills an Egyptian when he witnesses them beating an Israelite. And we see that Moses' initial response to seeing the suffering of Israel is to act out of this aggression and his own will. And it doesn't lead to any sort of positive change. In fact, not only does it lead to the death of an Egyptian, but it leads to his rejection by both Egypt and Israel. And he becomes sort of a wanderer out in the wilderness. Who am I? Moses asks. Moses was also old. Moses was 40 when he fled from Egypt to Midian, and he was a shepherd in Midian for another 40 years. So in our passage today, Moses is around 80 years old, and we can assume he's in pretty good shape because he's tending his flock on the side of a mountain. I don't know if many of our 80-year-olds could say that, but we can also assume that he is well past his prime. 
Who am I? Moses asks. Moses was slow of speech. We see this in chapter 4, verse 10. Moses said to the Lord, O my Lord, I am not eloquent, either in the past or since you have spoken to your servant, but I am slow of speech and of tongue. These verses have caused many to believe that Moses had some kind of speech impediment or a stutter. So once again, Moses asks, who am I? And what is God's response to Moses' question of who am I? In verse 12, he says, but I will be with you, and this shall be a sign for you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. I will be with you. Perhaps like Moses, you have a complicated past filled with shame and abandonment that makes you doubt the ways that God can use you. Or maybe like Moses, you feel that you're past your prime, that you're too old. Or maybe you think that you're too young for God to actually use you in this stage of life. Or maybe like Moses, you have some kind of disability or inherited condition or chronic illness And you feel alone in that and weak. How could God use you? In all of our insecurities, whatever they may be, God's response is a simple one. I will be with you. He promises his presence. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul expresses his weakness and insecurity. And then God tells him, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. So Paul says, therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. While our weaknesses and our insecurities only seem like hindrances, God will use them to display his glory by his power working in you. Where you are weak, he is strong, and he still has a plan and a purpose for your life. He will be with you even in those overwhelming insecurities. He will also make his presence known in those insecurities by providing community, by providing brothers and sisters in Christ, the church, to come alongside you and to support you in the ways that God has called you into his will. We see this in our passage um, later on in Exodus where God calls Aaron to support Moses in speaking to Pharaoh. So God uses community. And when we ask ourselves, who am I, along with Moses, we know that God's calling does not rely on the greatness of who we are, but the greatness of who God is. So the first question that he asks, who am I? The second question Moses asks, if I come to Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? It may seem like a strange question, Like, wouldn't Israel know God's name? This isn't their first experience with God, right? But it's possible that after generations of slavery that they have forgotten to some extent the God of their fathers. But we also have to keep in mind the polytheism of Egypt, as I mentioned earlier. When you've been exposed to an array of different gods for generations and someone comes speaking on behalf of a god, you think, which guy is this guy? You know, which god is this guy talking about? Is he talking about the sun god? Is he talking about the river god? Is he talking about the sky god? Is he talking about the bush god? No, this god is different. God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now we know in scripture that names 
can be very important. But what's even more important are the names of God, because they not only say something about God's nature and his character, but they say something about how we relate to him as his creation. So think about Emmanuel. We talk about that a lot at Christmas, which, which means God with us. And that has a really profound meaning for how we relate to God. So now let's think about I am. We are familiar with this term in the church, but it shouldn't be lost on us that this is kind of a weird response, right? It's not a name. It's not even a noun. It's a verb. It's also intentionally profound and mysterious and vague. Uh, Charles Ellicott, a 19th century Anglican theologian, expounds on this, speaking from God's theoretical perspective. And he says, My nature cannot be declared in words, cannot be conceived of by human thought. I exist in such sort that my whole inscrutable nature is implied in my existence. I exist as nothing else does, necessarily, eternally, really. If I am to myself a name expressive of my nature so far as language can be, let me be called I am. You know, a name like that really makes Ra, the sun god, seem kind of silly, right? God is infinitely greater than the Egyptian gods in the scope of his existence, right? He's infinitely greater in the scope of his presence. As we're talking about God's presence today, God in his name and nature is the very essence of what it means to be, to be eternally and ever-present. Even in his name, God is declaring his presence with Moses and his insecurities, and he's declaring his presence with the people of Egypt and their suffering. This I am name is also where we get the Hebrew name Yahweh. And I'm no Hebrew scholar, but some Hebrew scholars think that the proper pronunciation of Yahweh from the original consonants, Y-H-W-H, represent breathing sounds, like an inhale and an exhale. So, so think about that, that every time you breathe, you may be invoking God's name. And everything that has breath literally declares God's name, whether they know it or not. Which means that every breath under the heavy labor of slavery was declaring God's presence. Every last breath of the Israelite sons drowning in the Nile was calling out to God. And God heard and God knew. And every breath that Moses breathes is a reminder that God is near him in his insecurities. God is constantly with all of us and intimately, even in our very breath, if we just acknowledge him. May knowing this give us a deeper faith and a deeper confidence in God as we're faced with self-doubt and insecurity. Our final point this morning is that God is present in our calling. And this will probably be my most application-heavy point. So we've already touched on God's calling in verse 10 to Moses. I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And we see that in verse 8, that this is not something that God is just sending Moses out to do on his own, but it's something that God is already actively doing. God says in verse 8, I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. So God is inviting Moses into this mission that he is doing. And that's something that should resonate with us as Christians because we are all called into God's mission of freeing people from the bondages of sin and bringing people into reconciliation, a right relationship with God. 
through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we proclaim the gospel, right? If the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed, free from sin. But sharing Christ with others can be a challenge and thin in and of itself, right? He may call you to share Christ from, uh, with people who are from many different backgrounds and contexts. That can be very challenging. He may call you into some dark and desolate places to encounter the lost sheep. He may call you into messy relationships with family, friends, and coworkers where it would just be a lot easier to not talk about God, right? Some of us he will call to go abroad, which presents many challenges, right? Some of us he will call to stay put, which also shows many challenges for us, right? Wherever God calls you to spread the good news of Jesus, know that he is with you near as your breath, and he is perfecting his power in your weakness and giving you the words to say and the community to support you. But I'm going to be honest with you all this morning. I think there's a big pitfall in our application of this sermon and this text. And I'm afraid that if I don't address it here, we may miss a big point that God wants to make in this narrative. And for lack of a better term, I think we can just focus on maybe the spiritual aspect of this and maybe over-spiritualize what's going on here. Of course, we should share the gospel in response. Absolutely, that's the point I just made. And while the exodus from Egypt did mean a freedom from spiritual oppression and renewal in Israel's relationship and covenant with God, they were also freed from a very literal, earthly system of slavery. Now, most likely, we won't be called to free a literal nation of slaves, but we are called to declare the freedom in Christ over sin, death, and the powers of darkness that exist in our world. This is the heart of God, to destroy systems of oppression, and that's throughout the Bible, in places like Isaiah 58, where it expresses God's desire to literally loose the bonds of wickedness and to undo straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free and to break every yoke. And I'd invite you to read that whole passage, Isaiah 58, because there's a lot in there that just really connects to this sermon and our passage today. So whether it's later after the service or this week, I invite you to dig into Isaiah 58. I think the great theologian Johnny Cash sums up our pitfall in his song, No Earthly Good. He says, if you're holding heaven, then spread it around. There's hungry hands reaching up here from the ground. Move over and share the high ground where you stood. You're so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. While we await complete unity with God in his heavenly kingdom, we also recognize that the kingdom of God is among us now, and God will compel us to realize his kingdom here on earth by relieving the suffering of others, sometimes joining God in righteously toppling the systems and structures that created suffering in the first place. One may say that this is a sacred calling and tradition of the Christian church. You know, I think of William Wilberforce and all those involved in the abolition movement, and they did that out of a Christian conviction, right? I think of, of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. who addressed racism and segregation that still existed as a result of that oppression some 100 years after our Emancipation Proclamation. And in our context, I think there's still work that needs to be done to address segregation, racism, and these effects of slavery. 
But in our context, I also think about sexual slavery. The Kentucky Derby is the second most popular event for human trafficking, and it's getting worse. Reading from a report that broadcasted on WFPL this past May from Yasmin Huma, one of the reasons Kentucky really is vulnerable to human trafficking is that we are in the corridor of the interstates 65, 64, 75, and 71. And so a lot of human trafficking can easily flow through our state. For almost two years in a row, the majority of children hurt by human trafficking was in Louisville. In the state of Kentucky, there are many children who fall victim. In 2021 alone, we had 312 reports of human trafficking involving almost 400 child victims. And if that weren't bad enough, that's a 50% increase in the number of reports from 2020 and a 61% increase in number of kids and youth. Between 2013 and 2020, there were over almost 1,200 reports of human trafficking involving 1,400 child victims. And almost every one, except for about 30 of almost those 1,200 reports involved a child sex trafficking. I apologize, but this is heavy. It's a really heavy example, and we don't like to think about it. We don't like to see it. But slavery is right here under our noses. And God has surely seen their affliction and has heard their cries because of their taskmasters. God knows their sufferings. And maybe God is calling you, calling us, calling the church to be the means by which he delivers them. And look, I'm preaching to myself here too because I'm no expert in this topic. These problems, they seem too big for me. They seem too big for us. And it's easy to maybe intentionally over-spiritualize these passages because it's easier than actually taking action against these systems. I have no clue where to start. I mean, I know a few organizations, but I don't know how I can really make a difference. And then I think about Moses and Moses' insecurities and his back and forth with God, and that's me, right? That's us. Is God trying to get our attention like he got Moses' attention? And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Moses, Moses, Nolan, Nolan, Vine Street, Vine Street. We learn a lot about God from the burning bush, but that's what the burning bush ultimately was. It was a way to get Moses' attention and to call him for his purposes. So may we turn aside and look when God calls us. And in the same way that God is present as I am, may we also be present to hear from God and say with Moses, here I am. May we remember that God is present in the wilderness. God is present in our suffering. God is present in our insecurities. God is present in our calling. It's hard to end this sermon on such a heavy topic, um, but I felt compelled by the Spirit to share that, um, and I struggled with the idea of sharing that 
Um, but if that uh, speaks to your heart, um, I invite you to talk with me or to talk with church leadership. So let us go to the Lord in prayer as we ask him to move and to work. God, we don't know how to respond to the things that you call us to. We don't know what to do. We don't know what to say, but we are here. We're turning to you with open hearts, saying that we are present for whatever it is that you're calling us to join you in. We want to see, to hear, and to know the sufferings that you see, hear, and know, so that people may be freed from oppression and freely know you as their ever-present Lord and Savior. May we let go of the things that hold us back from loving you and loving others. May we place our confidence in nothing but the fact that you are with us. You are everything. And it's by the precious blood of Jesus that we can come before you and ask these things, our holy, perfect, and just God. Amen.